0: Welcome to our missions course entitled, A Light to the Nations. This is lesson two, The Message of World Missions. Before we focus on the message of world missions, we must spend a little more time on the mandate for missions. And to do that, I'd like to access David Hesselgrave's three mandates. You'll see them there on your notes. And this is from his book, Christ and Culture in Perspectives on the Christian World Movement. And so, David Hesselgrave has noted these three mandates that should motivate missionaries to do what they do. Here they are. The cultural mandate, the social mandate, and the gospel mandate. The cultural mandate, the social mandate, and the gospel mandate. So, to look at the cultural mandate, let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, reads as follows. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what we have in the cultural mandate here is that God created everything and pronounced everything good. And it's establishing man's authority over all creation. Man has authority to exercise over creation underneath God's authority, And so when we talk about the cultural mandate, what we're talking about is man's relationship with the created order. So this is actually a motivation for world missions. You do understand that the earth itself will be redeemed. God will redeem the earth back to its original form and nature to display his glory. So this this motivation to preach the gospel is, is actually, it connects us with the earth, it keeps us connected to the very practical things. Work keeps us connected to culture. It's 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 this idea. We're going to explore this a little bit more uh, as we move through these mandates. It's this idea that Christian life takes possession of heathen forms of life, making them new. This is uh, Herman Bavinck. Christian life takes possession of heathen forms of life, making them new. So the whole idea is that as we're sharing the gospel, as we're sharing Jesus as Lord, it's restoring mankind back to creation. It's really this creation mandate uh, to exercise God's authority over all of creation, that creation itself might reflect or display God's glory. So that's the cultural mandate, Genesis one twenty-eight. Next, let's move to the social mandate. The social mandate we will find is in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. So please turn there. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. What are we doing? We're laying down mandates that really take take in all of God's commands, that take in the story, the story of of creation, the story of redemption. So creation, the fall between Genesis 1, 28 and Genesis 9, 1 through 17. We have a problem. That problem is called sin. And so we look at the social mandate, Genesis 9, verses 1 to 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your, for, your And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply... Uh, team on the earth and multiply in it. So we see here in Genesis 9, 7, a, re- a repetition of the of the dominion mandate in Genesis 1, 28. But as you can tell, he's been talking previous to this, how we're to relate together as people. We're on the uh, social mandate in your notes there. How we're to relate together as people. Verse 8 of Genesis 9. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, To destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, what we have here is we have this sense of man rightly relating to creation which is the, which is the cultural mandate and then man rightly relating to one another which is the social mandate this is very important let's say you're preaching or you're you're bringing the gospel to Hindus one of the primary ways you can come in with the gospel to Hindus is their concept of creation their concept of creation how does one relate to creation and part of that is how does one relate to one another is it cyclical is creation animate? So I'm doing a study right now on the Jains, J A I N S. This is a this is a group of about two million people in India that kind of share Hinduism, but the Jains have their own particular brand of Hinduism, and the Jains believe that everything has a conscience, even plants, and the Jains believe in this nonviolent attitude toward. All of creation so, so they don't distinguish between plants and animals and humans What they would say is Depending on your level of senses Hearing, sight, thinking Then you kind of are a little bit higher up on the order uh, of creation So, so for a Jain, a strict Jain Who's trying to get into their final salvation And basically that is They get out of the reincarnation wheel That's their final point of salvation When they finally get there And they just sort of float over the universe One with the universe But for a strict Jain And there are some here in the United States. They will eat certain vegetables. So they'll eat a tomato, because you can pick the tomato off the tree, but you don't damage the tree, because they believe that the tree has a soul. They believe the tree has a consciousness. But they won't eat onions or potatoes. Why? Because you have to destroy the tree to eat that onion. All right, so so when you're sharing the gospel with them, nonviolence is their main credo. And when you're sharing the gospel with them, and you start talking about the cross... That's just going to gonna freak them out. Like, Why would God kill his son? They're very non-violent. But there is something in Jainism that says that for a greater good, by the way, worms have life. You can't destroy worms, insects. For a greater good, you can destroy some life. For example, when they build their temples, they have to till the earth, and they realize they're going to kill roots, they're going to kill trees, and they're probably going to kill a worm or two. But what they say is, for the greater good... So, you can can enter in that for the greater good, God came down to earth, became a man and was crucified on a cross. But here's the deal. The problem is their relationship to creation. They don't quite understand that there is one ultimate God, because in their system there isn't. They don't understand that that God then would relate to us and tell us to relate to one another through His Word, so they have no concept for ultimate authority. If you talk to them about what the Bible teaches, they would think, well, there is no ultimate authority. Everybody has a little bit of the truth. By the way, it's the James who came up with the wonderful illustration that I think many of us use incorrectly but they're the ones that came up with the whole elephant how do you describe an elephant five blind men describing the elephant or four you know one of them grabs the tail and says oh the elephant he's like a snake the other one kind of puts his hands on the legs he says no, no the elephant's like a pillar and the other one you know grabs the tusk and he says oh no the, you know the elephant sorry the, the tail is the elephant's like a rope one of them grabs the tusk and feels that, no the elephant is is a snake um, and so they would say, all of them have valid knowledge, and then you bring it all together, then you get, you, get, you know, you start moving toward complete knowledge. But they don't acknowledge ultimate authority. So when you think about creation, and you think about a creator for this, this type of person, and by the way, they're not alone. Outside of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, everybody else is pretty much gonna have multiple gods or they're pretty much gonna say you can't really know the truth and m- many of them underlying their religion is a bit of an animism where the life isn't all of creation and God is in all of creation so you can see that when you come in with the proper view of creation immediately you're gonna challenge their view and you're gonna open the door For God, and you're going to open the door for then Christ. So I would say that on the social mandate, not only would it be Genesis 9 1 to 17, but turn over to Matthew 22. Because I think Matthew 22 then helps us understand Genesis 9. Because remember, in Genesis 9 is where you have capital punishment. By the way, if you're ever wondering where capital punishment is in the Bible, it's in Genesis 9. And it speaks of not taking, if one takes another's life, their life is to be taken. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. Well look at Genesis 22, starting in verse 36. We're still on the social mandate if you're looking at your notes. And uh, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So here we have this social mandate that seeks to not only have man rightly relate to creation, but also rightly relate to one another. It speaks of being in relationship with God as we walk in obedience to God, We exercise dominion over his creation, and we rightly relate to one another. We rightly relate to one another. All right, next. The third mandate here from David Hesselgrave is the gospel mandate. The gospel mandate. So, in the gospel mandate, what we see here is... This is now, this is the crux of it, isn't it? Now once, once we're kind of into someone's culture, into someone's religion, maybe we enter through creation, that's what we're talking about here. Now we bring the message. The gospel mandate requires missionaries to teach others all that Christ commanded. So last week we talked about the five commissions that Christ gave us, the five commissions that Christ gave us. And one of those, the one that's most well-known, is Matthew twenty-two eighteen to 20 So in the gospel mandate, we acknowledge one authority. All authority has been given to me, said Jesus. We go and make disciples in his name through the gospel and we teach them to obey all that he has commanded us. John Calvin would say it this way. Believers must work to make culture Christian. To place culture under Christ. At least conducive to Christian living. If you know anything about Calvin's Geneva, it is said that it was one of the most godly places. There was real, true cultural transformation there. This is where, again, that, that quote from Bavink comes in. Christian life takes possession of heathen forms of life, making them new. We preach all Christ commanded. The goal is transformation of lives and culture, both lives and culture. And, and again, I don't think this is a bridge too far. I think sometimes, particularly in Western Christianity, we truncate it and we make it very individual. But if you look at the, at the story of the Bible, if you open the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the story begins with creation. The story ends with the garden and the tree of life. In between that story is God restoring creation creation which obviously includes man at the peak of creation, but all of creation to display his glory. So as we're preaching, we have a cosmology. We have an idea of the universe and of creation that helps others understand and walking them through the narratives of the Bible, particularly Genesis, very important as we're preaching, so that they can understand. Because most other peoples, they're very communal. They're very culture-bound. They're very family-bound. It's... It's, it's, it's the group Which is one of the reasons why it's so hard to reach them If you, read, if you reach a Jain J-A-I-N This is a, a Hindu group people, people okay, Kind of like Hinduism Or an Indian people Kind of like Hinduism If you reach a Jain It's so hard because once they acknowledge Christianity They're ejected from their family Conversely If you help them retain those bridges, Donald McGavern talked about these bridges and cultures. If somehow you pray that God would, would, that bridge would remain, then you can see, particularly if you reach an elder, whole family groups are saved. And you see that in the New Testament. You see that in Acts. In so many cultures, it's not the individual, it's the group. Well, you capture that when you capture these mandates that it's about creation. It's not just about me going to heaven, but it's about a people. It's about restoring the earth. If you think about it, it captures the concerns of those that are so interested in the environment. It's good to be interested in the environment. Absolutely. We're to be stewards of the environment. Now, typically God is not primary there. They have more in common with an animism. And almost even, you know, the, the trees have life like, like a soul. But, but it does capture the little bit of truth that's there that we're to steward that environment because one day it's important. God's going to restore the heavens and the earth. He's going to restore that. And so as you approach A culture as you approach a people with these mandates, this gospel mandate, that also includes cultural transformation. It includes rightly relating to to the the creation, certainly rightly relating to one another, but that can only happen if we rightly relate to God. So we've looked at these three mandates by Hesselgrave. Right? The cultural mandate, the social mandate and the gospel mandate. Now let's look at the message in your notes. The message. So let me let me start by kind of exegeting the passage that you have there in front of you. And it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. So why don't we turn there? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. There's many places you can go for the gospel, absolutely. I would suggest you memorize this one, because this one's really good. They're all really good. But this one's nice and succinct. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 to 8 And it says the following Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is writing this. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believe. The primary message of the gospel is contained herein. This is the message of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And if we fail to deliver this message... We have not yet done missions work. Now, let's tease that out for a second. Let's go back to an animist. An animist probably describes most of the peoples on earth. Even Muslims, we talked about last week, in Indonesia, have an animistic undertone to their their religion. Why do I say that? Because there's many stories where... The the Indonesian Muslims, particularly those that are poor and somewhat uneducated, if there is a problem, if there's a volcano that is erupting, it is not unheard of that they might sacrifice somebody. Or they'll go to a shaman. So a Muslim community goes to a shaman who they think has contact to all the spirits that inhabit all the bushes and volcanoes, and it's in the sky and the storms and the typhoons, and they are seeking that shaman to protect them from the evil spirits. So imagine you go into this village and you begin to preach Jesus. How do you preach Jesus? What is their greatest need? Now, it is true that you can preach Jesus as the ultimate authority, we just talked about this, who has power over every spirit and over everything they might be afraid of. Jesus Christ is Lord right? All things were created through him, by him, were all things created, Colossians. So you can say, and I think it's okay to say, listen, you can rest in Jesus. He has authority over whatever evil spirit you think is afflicting your child who's sick right now. Absolutely. And, and you can pray, and you can, you can say to that parent that instead of doing some uh, sort of animistic ritual to make sure your child never gets sick, hey, instead of that, Let's bring him to the church. Let's bless him in Jesus' name or bless her in Jesus' name. Or if two people are getting married, instead of what some people do in Indonesia is spit beer in their face to make sure that certain spirits, I'm not sure which, the, spirit, the spirits of beer, maybe the spirits of bad beer, uh, don't attack them. You say, instead of that, Jesus is Lord, let us pray for you. That is all very valid. That is all very valid. Just like in America, you can, you can say to someone, do you want your marriage healed? Come to Jesus. Uh, are, are, are you depressed and discouraged? Come to Jesus. Those are all valid things to say. But I would maintain that if you don't get to the main point of the gospel and say to that person, "Your greatest, the greatest danger to you is a holy God who is over all, and the wrath that he has towards you because of sin. And Jesus, though he is all of that that I just described, and all those things accrue to Christians or can accrue to Christians, certainly nothing can affect us. No evil spirit can affect a Christian unless the Lord allows it, which brings up another discussion, not for this class. But if you fail to say your greatest danger isn't from those evil spirits, it's from a holy God whose wrath is against you because of your sin, As you walk them through the story of the Bible, as you bring them back to the creation account, everybody has a creation account. And as you say, this is the Christian creation account. And here in Genesis 3 is the main problem. There's sin, and there's judgment, death, and all evil has been released because of that rebellion. But in Genesis 3.15, a Savior is promised and begin to walk them through the narratives. Then they understand, okay, my greatest need, I would maintain, I think this is where the Holy Spirit brings conviction. My greatest need... Is, is rescue not from these evil spirits or in America not from depression or, or not from, you know, whatever. Uh, my great, or drugs or any of that stuff, addiction, my greatest need is to be saved from a holy God who is set against me because I'm evil. And that, it may take a long time to get there, like living with them for, for many, many years. But unless we get there, then I maintain the gospel is not preached adequately. So, so whether it's in an animistic culture and it's evil spirits, whether it's in America and you're speaking with an alcoholic or an addict or, or a workaholic, someone whose life is, is being you know, busted apart because of sin, we've got to start with the wrath of God. Now, can you, can you meet them where they're at? To pray that God take them where they need to be. Absolutely. Can you start with evil spirits? Yes, most, most definitely. Their felt need is for protection from evil spirits. But if we never get to the wrath of God and being saved from that which is most dangerous to them, then we haven't been faithful to the gospel. Jesus protects the animus. Jesus heals. Jesus patches up marriages. Jesus meets financial needs. Yes, he does. We don't we'll ever want to say that he doesn't. But the ultimate issue is the wrath of God, is, is salvation. Just to take a few examples, let's look at Mark or John 4.15. John 4.15. John 4.15. <clears throat> this is an interesting one. In John 4.15, Jesus is speaking to a woman who has a need her need is for water her need is for water and she is getting that water by herself because she has been rejected by her culture so in john 4:15 we we read the following <clears throat> jesus says to her the woman said to him sir give me this water so that i may not be thirsty or have come here to, for i have come here to draw water In verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So so what, what he's doing is, she came saying, I need water. Earlier, Jesus said, oh, I've got water that you can drink that you'll never be thirsty. She's thinking, wow, I'd like that water because it's hard work for me to come get water by myself, probably in the heat of day. It's in Palestine. It's a desert environment. I'd like some of that water. And then he takes it to that next level and he says, no, no, your issue is that you're a sinner. And then she says in verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. I love that one. Because you're going to get that with any people group that's not Christian, particularly those like a place like Indonesia. Remember, we're talking world missions, like a Muslim world. It's going to go to worship. And so she's saying, wait a second. Now I understand. We're talking about worship. We're talking about God. And then he speaks to her in verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, The spirit world to them is very real. That's one of the things that we miss out here, here in, in America particularly. We, we, we have sort of the material world, and we have sort of that, that final world when we die, but we miss this whole spirit world. Many, most other peoples are much more in tune with other spirit, other spirits, things happening in the spirit world. So immediately she's moving to that spirit world, and Jesus moves right with her, and he's saying, no, no, the worship of God He's saying, is in me. And so, as you enter into, let's say, an animus culture, let's say this culture in Indonesia where you're reaching out to someone who's afraid of the spirits that live everywhere, you're immediately saying, you don't have to worship that spirit. You don't have to think that that rock it has some sort of, it's a fetish, it has some sort of magical powers that if I have that rock in my house right here on the certain ledge, it's going to keep uh, the evil spirits from coming in. Oftentimes, if you're in a place like Indonesia, you're riding in a bus. I've read about this. You're riding in a bus, and it's hot. It's hotter than it was in the middle of the day at our campground on, on Friday. And it's humid. You'll be riding in that bus. People are sweating profusely. All the windows are shut. Why? Because people believe that the wind. The, there are spirits in the wind that are evil. And if you let the wind in the bus, you'll get sick. Now, I mean, you can understand this after centuries, right? You, you you get a lot of you get sweaty. Let's say the wind hits you, you get a cold at night. You know the AC is blowing on you, whatever. You can understand that. But what they're doing is they're worshiping things. They're worshiping the the creation, and that speaks to us of what Romans one. Though there's evidence of God in creation, man in his rebellion, they push down that evidence, they deny that evidence, that general revelation of God, and instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. Now in our culture it looks one way, but in most of the other cultures in this world, it's actively like trying to manipulate the evil spirits and trying to make sure that everything goes right. I mean we still have a little bit of this here. There are people that are super super superstitious in our culture, but not like in other cultures so 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 they're desperate to find someone who's in touch with all that that can protect them and so you can enter in with yes Jesus is lord he can protect you to the woman at the well yes i have water that you'll never be thirsty but then it moves to that place of but there's a greater need you have and so uh, that is one example there's another biblical example mark 2 let's turn there mark 2 mark 2 amazing passage And these are two really good passages, you know, to study and see how you can apply it as you're reaching out to someone here in South Florida that would not be a Christian and would not have much idea about Christianity. So the idea is this man can't walk, he's on a pallet, they take a hole in the roof, they lower him down, and so Jesus just does this amazing thing, and uh, he sees the men's faith, and verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in their spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say that the par- to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. So here's the authority issue. But it's got to start with this next phrase, on earth to forgive sins. Now, I realize some people may not even have the idea of sin. If they don't have the idea of a supreme authority, if they don't have the idea of being accountable to a creator, I got it. you've got to build those bridges. But ultimately, it's got to get to that place of, I've sinned against him. My greatest need is forgiveness of sins. These men thought their greatest need was to be healed for their friend. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. I don't know that they ultimately understood. I'd like to think that some of those men were some of the converts, even be baptized. Uh, after Jesus' resurrection, ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit some 50 days uh, after His resurrection. The crux of the matter is this. One thing is necessary. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you must be born again. What's necessary is change, regeneration through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to go into these cultures. In fact, we must go into these cultures and understand these cultures and start with where they're at. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I'm all things to all men. So I start with where they're at. We can talk about Cosmology and evil spirits. I can spend a lot of time on that. As a matter of fact, I think we have to spend that kind of time. But eventually, I want to see the Holy Spirit bring them where they, God wants them to be, which is understanding that my greatest need is forgiveness of sins so that I can understand a holy God. Here's the message of missions Matthew 6 Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. It is Christ, but Christ is the one who brings in the kingdom. Jesus Christ came preaching, repent and believe for the kingdom of God has come. It's this, it's this cosmology. It's this whole picture beyond simply individual conversion. It's not less than that, but it's, it's the conversion of creation. It's the conversion of cultures. I maintain that this is the passion that drives missionaries, I think. This is the passion that drove the great missionaries of the past. This is the passion of the Apostle Paul when he said the things that he said. I preach the gospel as we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, it's not I, it's Christ, but I'm going to work as hard as anybody because he was enthralled with a vision of salvation, of the greatest need of mankind. And he was enthralled of a picture of creation being restored. After all, it was Paul who wrote Romans 8 by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said, all of creation groans, waiting for the redemption of mankind. So it's, it's all fit together. We dare not tear it apart. We dare not overemphasize creation. We dare not overemphasize the individual. We dare not overemphasize the communal aspect of it. But we dare not overemphasize emphasize an individualistic piety. But it's together. He's creating a people. So as we read the scriptures, instead of reading them individualistic, we, we can start there, but then we move to a greater understanding by God that he, it's his story. He's building something. He is recreating all of these things. And then he says, will you join me in that? What, 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 a, what a wonderful project. I mean, it's the difference between building a, a skyscraper or building a city, that's better, building a city and a vision to build a city that you would you would spend your whole life perhaps in one aspect of it but you're always cognizant of this master builder, builder the master architect who's designed the city and it's the city of God and it's a city that restores what was lost in paradise this gospel is what meets the most urgent need any person has and this is the gospel with which we go to the nations to preach I want to leave you with one other resource here as we conclude, and that is something called the Luzon Confession. All right, the Luzon Covenant, L-A-U-S-A-N-N-E. I think I put a link at the bottom of your notes there. So this was, uh, <clears throat> this was fashioned in 1974. Uh, it's interesting, actually, Billy Graham was was very key in, in, in uh, bringing people together to, to fashion this in Luzon, Switzerland. I believe um, Scott wrote it. And I forgot his first name now. The theologian. His last name Scott. And uh, So if you read it, if you go online and read it, it, it really is a wonderful introduction and it's a wonderful document to help us work together. I'll just read the, the first paragraph. We, members of the Church of Jesus Christ from more than 150 nations, participants in the International Congress on World Evangelization at Luzon, Praise God for His great salvation, and rejoice in the fellowship He has given us with Himself and with each other. We are deeply stirred by what God is doing in our day. That's the key. God is doing it. And he just calls us to participate. Moved to penitence by our failures and challenged by the unfinished task of evangelization. We believe the gospel is God's good news for the whole world, and we are determined by his grace to obey Christ's commission, to proclaim it to all mankind, and to make disciples of every nation. We desire, therefore, to affirm our faith and our our resolve, and to make public our commitment. I'll just read the first paragraph, The Purpose of God. We affirm our belief in the one eternal God, Creator and Lord of the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who governs all things according to the purpose of his will. He has been calling out from the world a people for himself and sending his people back into the world to be his servants and his witnesses for the extension of his kingdom the building up of Christ's body and the glory of his name very god-centered. We confess with shame that we have often denied our calling and failed in our mission by becoming conformed to the world or by withdrawing from it. Yet we rejoice that even when born by earthen vessels the gospel is still a precious treasure the task of making that treasure known in the power of the Holy Spirit, we desire to dedicate ourselves anew. So let's pray for that. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to dedicate ourselves anew to this gospel. We are earthen vessels. We often fail. But Lord, would you open our eyes to the grand story of redemption. Put in our hearts a a taste of eternity both paradise that was lost but paradise that will be restored that in the midst of our difficulties in the midst of barriers that seem insurmountable like the Jains or like Islam where we think how in the world can we penetrate such a strong religion with such strong familial ties so many barriers to Christ Lord you are Lord of all your authority is over all so, Lord, give us the strength. Lord, raise up missionaries to cross cultural, linguistic, worldview barriers to bring the gospel to people that have never heard it. Like the Jains, very few of them have ever heard the gospel. They're in southwest India. They're a very high caste. They're very intellectual. They've built many hospitals. They're financially savvy. But oh, God. God, they're lost. I pray for them just take a moment to pray in your heart for those you would just silently just pray to the Lord a people group God puts in your heart right now Lord we pray for laborers for the harvest as you've taught us to pray right after that episode with the woman at the well this this Samaritan woman that was an outcast to the Jews and even to her own Samaritan people she went to the village and drew people and as and as Jesus watched them coming out to them he turned to his disciples and he said the harvest is plentiful i can just imagine That they're walking maybe through areas where maybe, I don't know if there's corn or whatever was growing wheat. And so you see the heads of the people bouncing here through those fields. The harvest is plentiful. There it is, they're coming. But the laborers are few. Pray, therefore, that the Lord of the harvest would send them. Father, we pray that. We'd be senders. Some may go, but we'd all be involved. Lord, hear our prayer for the glory of your name for the fame of your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Oh Lord, we look forward to that. May that fill our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.